Yeah, um, yeah. So before we start, let's do the thing where we um, we record a bumper. It's sort of like a, a promo for okay. you and a promo for me. Okay. So it sounds something like, hi, this is Jason Troy from jasontroy.com, and you are listening to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith. Vroom Vroom Vroom. Whatever you want to do. Just make it funny and cool. So then I'll take okay. that and I'll put that on another show, somebody else's show. And then okay. so you're getting a little promo and you're talking about me and being funny. See, so you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Whenever you're ready, go. Uh, this is Jason Troy. I'm an executive coach and the creator of Cards Against Mundanity. You can find me at jasontroy.com. And I'm on the Vroom Vroom Veer show with Jeff Smith. So Vroom Vroom Veer. Yeah. Rock on, dude. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to hit stop real quick and then start another uh, file for the show. I'll be right back. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Raj Daniels, thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Veer and welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm almost awake, <laughs> as we've previously discussed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about what uh, what you've got going on and you're excited about at RajDaniels.com. So, what I'm really excited about right now is helping individuals. Um, more specifically, people in the corporate world that are transitioning to entrepreneurship, but I've also been helping entrepreneurs for about 20 years and navigate what I call the VUCA landscape of entrepreneurship. And if you're familiar with the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A, it's volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous. And so any, <laughs> wow. anyone that's in entrepreneurship knows exactly what I mean. Oh, yeah. It's scary. It sounds scary. VUCA, just all by itself as an acronym. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and what was the last one? Say Ambiguous. Ambiguous. Wow. Yikes. You're, well, you, you're going to need help with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> okay. So this is Vroom Vroom Fear. So that means that it's like this is your life um, of Raj Daniels. So mm-hmm. let's go back in time and talk about Mm, I don't know. What was, uh, where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in London, England. Oh, wow. Um, London. Cool. Absolutely. And, um, you know, did my secondary schooling there. And in the late eighties, early nineties, my whole family moved to Dallas, Texas. But, um, you know, I have the privilege of having a global landscape. Uh, My parents are originally from East Africa. So I spent the summers going back and forth to Nairobi when we lived in London I've got family back in India, so I've had the good fortune of visiting India many times. And so, you know, I, I get to I get to keep my pulse on what's going on in and around the globe. And also, it helps me understand what the people outside of America are thinking of America and Americans. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I lived in England for about three years. Amazing. <laughs> where, where, in, where in England were you? Uh, I was at RAF Lake and Heath. Okay. Very That's nice. Very like nice. in I, Suffolk. I a, and I was Southeast London, SE4. Oh, nice. Yeah, we would, uh, when, I, when we wanted to go to London, we would drive uh, to Epping. Okay. And you could park for free at the mm-hmm. Epping uh, tube station. Right. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and then take the tube into the city. And so my father worked for British Rail, and so he was actually stationed at London Bridge. Oh, wow. Well, it was still in London. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Before it went to, where's it at? Lake Havasu? Something like that. Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> wow. So he was at the, 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 the original version of London Bridge? That's correct. Wow. Historic. That's mm-hmm. fun. Okay. Well, what was it like growing up in, uh, in England? Did you eat baked beans for breakfast like everybody else? You know, be, being of Indian descent, we didn't. Um, okay. You know, the, the, the palate varies. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, you know, a lot of times normal British uh, cereal breakfast or, you know, whatever my parents wanted to make. I didn't, I didn't realize the, um, the lack of options we had until we came to America. I mean, you know, you go down a cereal aisle in America and there's 300 kinds of cereal. Ah, um, right. I, I have three kids right now and, you know, we're always kind of discuss what kind of cereal. And, you know, I, I, I tell them and it sounds really strange. It sounds like one of those, you know, old people tales. But it's like, you know, when we were growing up, we didn't have this much choice. But, you know, the majority of the world is still that way where you don't have, you know, 300 kinds of cereal. You have maybe eight or five to choose from. Right. And so pretty standard fare. OK. All right. So, OK. So you went you said you went to college in, in England, too. No, I did. I did my secondary schooling there. So we call it secondary schooling. So it would be equivalent to high school. Oh, gotcha. And then I, I went to college here in America. Okay, and then that was in. Uh, did you go to school? I went to. Okay. Yeah, UNT University of North Texas, where I got my um, degree in liberal arts. It's actually a combination between business, history, and international studies. Oh, fun! Wow. So, what was that like? What what kind of a well? Let's go back to high school. What what sort of high school? Did you fit into one of those stereotypes? So we wore uniforms. Oh, um, right. Okay. I tell, I tell my kids about that because it takes away so much cognitive load when you don't have to think about what to wear every morning. And oh, so true. It, it's also the great uh, demographic equalizer because everyone looks the same. Right. And so you can't tell who's wearing you know, fashion clothes and who's not wearing fashion clothes and who can afford what. So it, it removes so much of that load. And then on top of that, I went to an all-boys school. Ah. Which, which again removes other distractions from your mind. Although yes. there is a lot of pent up testosterone and fighting going on. <laughs> right, but, right. But at least but, you're not dealing with dealing with it during the day when you're trying. A, to, yeah, a, absolutely, absolutely right. So, yeah. so you know, there's a combination of all that, and then and then coming to America from that background. Although the the good thing was that I had I had exposure to being an entrepreneur at a very young age. At the age of uh, twelve, I was you know had the paper route in London. And then uh, my manager liked me. And so I was able to get a convenience store essentially that sold papers. And on the weekends, I would work his convenience store, which was a lot of fun for me, you know, learning what cash flow and profit was was about as as a 12, 13 year old. Wow. That's amazing. That's a great education for a kid. I I love it. In fact, I I try to emphasize to my kids. So to tell you what kind of business nerd I am, I have three young daughters. They're five, eight and nine. And a game I made up late last year was it's called the supply chain game. And what that means is that, you know, whatever we're eating, or whatever we see, we kind of trace it back in the supply chain and see who added value along the way and where things actually come from. Oh, that's awesome. 
I love that. <laughs> That's a good idea. You know, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's almost. I, I've heard like Deepak Chopra talk about that. Like, oh, really? Interesting. Well, I remember, you know, he would say something like, you know, you know, that fruit that you're eating, you know, a lot of people worked really hard <laughs> and he wasn't talking about, he was talking more about gratitude and, yes, and being absolutely. present. Right. And thinking about, you know, you know, you can just absentmindedly eat an apple, right. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, you could, you could also step back and say, you know, it took a seed you know, and some mm-hmm. earth and some water and lots of sunlight and probably a lot of love from a farmer <laughs> to make that apple, you know, and that was just the beginning. And then I had to get on a truck and, you know, Jeff, Jeff <laughs> you are so, so right. Um, so I, I, I try to convey a lot of this to my children. There's a great book. In fact, one of my favorite books is called um, A Fish That Swallowed a Whale. And it's about uh, the a gentleman who actually was, it's about bananas, essentially. And he was an immigrant in the late 1800s and how he started his business in bananas and grew the company to essentially buy standard fruit at the time. But, you know, only 150 years ago, fruits, you know, oranges, apples, bananas were not were not locally grown. And it was so difficult to even get them. They were considered a luxury. Right. And so I try to convey the same message to my children, too, that, you know, I go to local store and buy bananas for 59 cents a pound. Like, how does everyone make any money doing that? Right. And, And what's all the labor that went into that to get that banana here? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's people just don't have the I don't know inclination to think about you know that sort of thing. So it's 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 I think it is in it's important to think about you know every day. I, yeah, I agree. All right. Absolutely. So that's a great lesson to, to teach your kids. Okay, so I'm interested in figuring out like what you did like immediately after you graduated from college. Did you did you have a job? So, um, so what I tell people is that I took the scenic route to go to college. And what, okay. and what I mean by that is after we came to America, uh, my dad and three other gentlemen started their own business. They were actually in the convenience store business here in, in Dallas. And so I got the opportunity to grow up around some of that. But right. then what I did, I went to flight school and learned to fly airplanes. Oh, wow. That's fun. <laughs> and so it, it, it was a blast, I tell you. I really, really enjoyed it. And so I spent you know, several years flying airplanes. Um, I didn't do it commercially, although I got some twin engine time, single engine time. I just loved being what I call upside down in an airplane, and the airlines kind of frown on that behavior. So I didn't take that route. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you were just doing it for the fun of it. You know, and that's kind of how I've navigated my life is that yeah, I, I feel something, you know, in the, in the pit of my stomach and I feel like I want to go do something. And, you know, sometimes you make a great amount of money doing it. Other times you just enjoy doing it. And sometimes, you know, you just learn a lesson from doing it. Right. And, and, and that's how I, I navigate. If I feel like I really want to go do something, like, you know, pursue flying an airplane, that's, well, that's what I went and did. And even till today, it's, it's what I do and what I recommend people do. So you still fly today? You know, I haven't flown in about um, 15 years, but I said that when my oldest daughter turns 10, which is later this year, I look into renewing my license so I can start taking my girls flying. Oh, that would be great. Wow. Yeah, I had another friend. He was actually another guy that was on the show that uh, he was into, you know, that single aircraft kind of hobby of flying planes, renting and flying planes. You learn so much about yourself and you... 
I'll, I'll tell you, you know, a, a solid takeaway from, from flying airplanes. So let's say I've scheduled a flight plan and I, at the time I was going to fly from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Arkansas. Okay. okay. And so you, you, you file the flight plan and then you take off and then weather moves in or something happens and you have to land somewhere and kind of you know wait for the weather to pass and start again. But you don't, you don't not continue the flight. So you don't give up on the goal, essentially. You right. just, you know, you, you, you manage whatever that comes in front of you, and then you, 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 you gather yourself up and you start out again. Right, and, right. You know, I do, some, I do some speaking here locally and some workshops, and I talk to people about goal setting, and I tell people, look, if you really have a goal that you're trying to pursue and, you know, you love this goal and it's just you feel like it's part of you, more often than not, it'll take longer than you expect but right. the the example I give people, and I, I love this analogy. I don't know if I heard it or made it up, but it's it's like you know, have you ever seen a tree grow? And people say no, we've never seen. But you know they grow. If you go outside, you see trees all around you, but you don't see them growing. Right. And 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 what I tell people is that you know, as you're moving towards your goal, things are changing inside of you. There's energies that are changing. There are roots that are taking place. Behaviors that are changing, and, and you can't see it happening. And more often than not, people tend to give up because they can't see something physically happening. But if you give it enough time and you, you, you know, you're, you're really committed to it, eventually you will see some fruition come mm. out of it. Mm. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I had the good fortune in my study. I, I sit under this tree. It's probably nine feet tall now. But I remember when I got it, it was two and a half feet. And I swear, Jeff, I've never seen it grow. But it went from two and a half feet to nine feet. Yeah. I can, I I have a, a an interesting parallel sort of story for for that situation. So uh I left my hometown and my parents' house. I lived there until I was 18 and then I joined the Air Force, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I can't remember when, but like I would say maybe a couple years before I left my mm-hmm. parents' house, my dad planted this tree, a little sapling, you know, mm-hmm. tiny little thing that you had to like, you know, mow around, right? As right, I was yeah, mowing the lawn. Well, you know, then flash forward 20 years, it wasn't even a whole 20 years, but that tree grew up. <laughs> it it's is amazing. It's, it's amazing gi- it gigantic. Yeah. It, it dominates the whole backyard now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a maple. Yeah. But yeah. it's, yeah. It's amazing. Amazing. And it provides really good shade for the backyard. So there you go. Right? Yeah. And they're working on selling the house now. Ah, oh, so sad. Oh. I don't get to sit behind, uh, in the backyard and hang out under that <laughs> tree anymore. That's okay. They've got a new, a new, new cool place to live. So, and it's in the woods. So I, oh. I'm cool with that. Very nice. Very nice. So, yeah. so going, so going back then, so I did flight school. I did, and then essentially went into entrepreneurial endeavors and then the college part actually came later in life. Um, I had a lot of friends of mine. My peer group had changed, and a lot of my peer group were now professionals that had been to college, and they had degrees. And I was kind of looking at them askew and said, you know, tell me about this college thing you guys have done. And they would tell me. So just out of pure curiosity, I started taking college classes, and I ended up with a degree. And I tell people I took the scenic route because I'd already <laughs> been, in, been in business. I kind of knew when I went to college what I was going to go to college for and what skills I wanted to hone. Right. That's why the, the international business part, that's why the real estate part, and that's why the history part, because I knew kind of what I was looking to do. Okay. And so I graduated with, with a college degree, but but later in life. Yeah, and it wasn't like the your typical uh, 
graduate from high school and then go party for four years and hope you pass at the end. <laughs> that Not that college experience. It was a lot more focused. You, you had like goals that you wanted to it get was, out it of. Was, it was intentional. Right. It was very it was in, intentional. intentional. And, and so I feel like, you know, there are some people that are, have this skill when they, when they come out of high school, they know exactly what they want to do or they've been convinced that there's something they know what they want to do. Right. And so, so they know their path is clear. But most people at the age of 18 or 20, they have no bloody idea what they want to no, do. No, they're clueless. I yeah. mean, I talk to people right now in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they still don't have any idea what they really want to do. Mm. Yeah. There's... Or, or they're afraid. They're afraid to tell people what they really want to do. Well, no, they, you know, I think you're right. I think you were spot on. I mean, I think it's, it's rare to find people that, know who they are and what they want to do for the rest of their life <laughs> when they're mm-hmm. 18 years old. You're That's right. You're clueless. Yeah. You have to go live. Right. So Absolutely. I, I, I'm glad I joined the military because it's a, you know, if, if the military fits you, which, you know, some, some people just, you know, don't belong in the military because, you know, they don't want to comply with, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's just not going to work out. But if, uh, I think if it, if it suits you, it's a lot of fun. You know, if you can put up with, you know, the bureaucratic, uh, BS every day, you know, right. Um, then, then, you know, it's, 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 you've got like endless growth opportunities. You're traveling like every, depending on your officer or enlisted, you know, every year or two or three, you know, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. want to, you know, so, and I, in my experience, um, because of the rules and the regulations and the higher standards you're being held to, you're mm-hmm. doing the same things and screwing up as a young person. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got this barrier of of bureaucracy that's keeping you safe and out of jail. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because all my friends, they did the same thing. You know, they would go out and you know get in trouble in bars and you know maybe get in a fight or you know just you know, be drunk and disorderly, they were in jail. You know, I did all those things too, but I just got yelled at by my boss, you know, Hey, don't, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't do that. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you never really had a a air quotes job then. Um, Never had a corporate job until I, until after my MBA. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell us, uh, tell us about how, what was the story and how so, you ended so, up in so the job? During, during the 2000s, I went into real estate when I was doing my undergrad and I did some really cool real estate deals here locally in Dallas. I, I managed to close the 10th largest real estate lease deal here in Dallas in 2003 or four, I believe. And what I found was that more and more people, because I had a business background, came to me and asked me for help with business. You know, they're, they're looking to open a franchise location or they're looking to open a new business. And I found that what I really enjoyed doing was doing strategy work with them and helping them format a business plan or kind of go through what the next steps were. Okay. If they were going to go for what they call institutional funding, so SBA funding or a bank loan, what they need to have in order. So it was more of a strategic consulting approach. And then I found out that there was actually this thing in the corporate world called strategy consulting where you go into large companies and you do essentially the same thing. You know, you help them, you know, create strate- strategic plans where they can take the resources they have at hand or get additional resources to execute on. And so I found out that you needed an MBA to do that. And so after I did my undergrad, I got my MBA. I got my MBA in global leadership at UTD, University of Texas, Dallas here locally. 
And I thought I wanted to go work for a large consulting company. So I interviewed and I got a job at a consulting company and I got put on a uh, project out in San Jose. And, you know, the, the, the company was great. The environment wasn't for me. And what I meant, mean by that is that because I was used to so many years of being an entrepreneur, being part of a small team, I, 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 didn't, I didn't fit well within the organization. And I felt like I wanted to make too many changes too quickly. And so I was starting to ruffle some feathers. Sure. And, yeah. and I've heard and, this and so, before. Yeah. And, and so, you know, 13, 14 months into it, I just figured, you know, it wasn't working for me. And I got another opportunity to be chief strategy officer for a smaller healthcare company. And I, and I took that opportunity. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've heard that before, where once you've kind of gotten the the bug, the entrepreneurial bug kind of thing, it almost starts ruining you for the the your your more traditional job uh, kind of environment, just because of what you were saying. It's not a good cultural fit anymore. Jeff, you know, I, I think I think we have a distinctively different perspective on money. And, and what I mean by that and what I learned during my MBA, there were 25 people in my MBA cohort. I was the only self-employed person in that cohort. Okay. And, and, and I think, so, you know, you're given a, a, a case study to work on and you're supposed to develop a plan for this case study. And let's say, for example, we want to develop a marketing budget for this particular product. Well, some of my cohort would say, you know, we'll just, you know, put $10,000 towards this marketing budget. And me being an entrepreneur, I like to say, you know, every dollar I send out should bring back friends. Um, I, 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I look at money totally differently. Yes. And, and I think even when I went to work for this company and I, and I was part of this large corporation, I just think from a mindset perspective, I give you an example, like, like a per diem, okay? Like you have, a, you have a $40 per diem, $60 per diem. And I see people would go to like a steakhouse almost two or three times a week. And I would question like, is that how you live at home? Because that's not how I live at home. And so, you know, <laughs> Like right. this, this is not magic money. It's coming either from the client or from the company. Right. So if it's coming from the company, it potentially could be coming from our profit pool. If it's coming from the client, are we overcharging the client? Like, like what do those questions look like? Right. Mm. And, and I think it just, I think working within a corporation and working for yourself just gives you a fundamentally different view of money. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah. And like what another comment that you made was, the culture in a big company can't change as fast as somebody with an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, or a startup mindset. You know, it's like, okay, this isn't going to work. Let's do something else now. No, you right. can't. You can't do that in a company. You know, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so that means that then um, it sounds like you did another job. Was that a, a, a job job, like a W-2 job, or was that more of a so, consultant? So I was chief, chief strategy officer on contract for a healthcare startup. Okay. So on contract. So still, yes. so not an employee. Correct. Okay. So now you're more like a, a freelancer. So, exactly right. Exactly. Just, just like, like, exactly how I am today. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, and then... That's, you know, almost about where I'm at now. You know, my last, oof, I haven't had a W-2 job in a while. Uh, well, that's not true. I mean, the, um, uh, I've been doing a lot of temp work, which I like because, you know, it's like uh, renting work instead of getting married. What you kind know? of temp work are you doing? <laughs> uh, mostly like uh, uh, IT. Okay. Yep. So I've done like a, 
like computer migrations. Uh, I like those because they're, I like project based stuff to, to be honest with you. I also did um, some IT work in Inglewood uh, school district back in California. And that was also, you know, like I knew it would only last until June. So that was good, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't migration. It was more like uh, helping the teachers with Chromebooks because they're do, using Chromebooks to do the standardized testing now. Mm-hmm. But I also got to do like uh, interesting, fun projects, um, kind of like on the side um, when I wasn't doing that. So it was fun. It was fun. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And then I just did another migration project. Uh, I don't know if you heard this, but apparently Windows 7 isn't very secure. So <laughs> the, uh, the, the DOD mandated that they will... Uh, they had to migrate from seven to 10, uh, off, off schedule as, as everybody in the it world, at at least the DOD it world, they don't like to, to use an OS until it's been out in the world for at least three to five years before they even start testing it, you know, and then they want three to five years to test it and, and, Mm -hmm. and sort of like secure it and get all shake down all the bugs and stuff. But they Mm -hmm. didn't have that option. They, the, <laughs> the DOD said thou shall. So anyway, they were under a, a big, yeah, right. So that was fun. I mean, it was like about four months and very crazy. And, uh, and then it was over. Yeah. Fun. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so, so with, with, the, with the gig economy, there's going to be more project based work. And I think I just heard recently that LinkedIn's new hiring procedures, a process is actually where they hire you for six months or a year contract yeah. to see how you fit and if they like you. And if they like you, they'll renew and continue. And I, I think we're going to see more and more of that in the industry. I, you know, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I know there's, there's a lot of folks sort of pushing back against the idea of the gig economy, but I kind of think it's stimul. It's very much like when I was in the military, they didn't like you to stagnate your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, the air force, I don't know about all the other services, but Everybody in in the Air Force culture was very much like you shouldn't be sitting in that job longer than you need to. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts. It's you, it, it looks like in your records you're getting too comfortable, and so you're not I, growing. I, I, <laughs> I agree, but if you think about you know the, the the current landscape of work, it's only a couple of hundred years old where we built this. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I think the idea of you know getting a job and staying with one company for your whole career. That's been over for a long time. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. I, I think millennials are asking some of the right questions regarding that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. There is definitely a tech technological divide. You know, there's like folks that are cool with technology and then everybody else. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think uh, I think the days of when you you can get away with like uh, having somebody help you with with everything technol techno- technology mm-hmm. um, those are those are like going away really fast now you know I I knew some like bosses that would you know they didn't even want to do email <laughs> mm-hmm. let alone edit their own memos right so right yeah I think those days are are pretty much numbered now I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so let's get back to your life. Um, or mm-hmm. you know what? I, I was looking at your blog a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said that you have uh, you're an amateur meditator. So talk a little bit about 
your meditation practice and, uh, and what it does for you? So I've been meditating since about 2001, 2002. Okay. And, and, and I, 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 you know, amateur meditator is, is tongue in, tongue in cheek. Um, well, but there are very few pros, but yeah, I get you. <laughs> how, how do you verify or validate a professional meditator? Right. I, I mean, do you, well, if, if you're do getting you, paid, I suppose. So, so people have offered to pay me. I, I just feel like, um, you know, it's one of those things. It, it, it's almost like a gift and, you know, maybe one day I'll charge for it, but how do you validate or verify that I've reached a stage of meditation practice where, right. you know, now, now I can lead a class or lead a team or, you know, charge for it. Or, and, and so I'm, I'm skeptical about some of that field. Um, you know, I, I believe like a lot of things, it, everyone has their independent flavor of meditating. Sure. Um, you know, I've kind of created what I've, I call it, you know, a blended style over the years where I took some training earlier in 2002, 2003. Um, I spent some time under some tutelage, but then they started talking more about, you know, a guru and the light in the heart. And I, I that didn't fit well with me. And so I researched uh, transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. the whole idea of, you know, paying and then getting a mantra, you know, having an Indian background, you know, we, we've been chanting OM for thousands of years. So, so it's free. Was, you don't have to pay it, for it. <laughs> right. Right. And so, and so uh, not, not knocking it, but just, you know, not for me, but I, I use my meditation for, for, for different, re, uh, different reasons. So there's, there's absolutely the, the centering part of it that I really, really enjoy. Um, you know, I do it every single morning and then some days I will add, you know, uh, visioneering to it. So I'll do visioneering after the meditation or before the meditation, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I, if I have an important meeting coming up, then I will actually try to run through the meeting in my mind. So when I'm in the meeting, it's not my first time at the meeting. I've already been in this meeting before. Right. So if I, if I find the conversation veering off, I'll try to you know pull it back. But you know, I, I, I can't say enough good things about meditation. In fact, I'll tell you, in 2015, I wasn't ever a heavy drinker, but I like having drinks on the weekends. But in, in 2015, um, I had this experience where I felt like even if I had one glass of wine – uh, the meditation the next morning was a little bit cloudy, and so I, I quit drinking on the spot. So, you know, I'm, I'm done with drinking. My, my meditation, Congratulations. Thank, thank you so much. You know, my meditation is locked in so much tighter. Um, and this is where some people might tune out and just warning you. But I'm telling you that in 2015, I had an experience, and the only way I could describe the experience to my wife was I felt as though my skin evaporated. So there was no longer me and the air around me. Mm. I just feel like something something happened. But I came to learn later that there's actually this thing in meditation called separation, where people have some of these experiences depending on the depth of the or the length of the meditation. And so I had this experience back in 2015, and it was one of the most phenomenal experiences I've ever had. And I've had it several times after that, but that first time when I had it, it scared me. I didn't know what it was, but um, I said, you know what, this is this was just amazing. And so, you know, I, I, I recommend to everyone, especially in this day and age where you're constantly bombarded with, you know, external uh, in distractions. Mm. I feel like people need to find a way to take a few minutes, to, whether, whether it's centering yourself, whether it's just collecting yourself, whether it's, you know, focusing on yourself, whatever term you use, meditating, but people need to find some kind of practice like this where they can just, you know, bring themselves together for at least a little bit of time. Yeah. No, I, I started about the same time, I think. 
at least looking into meditation. Well, that's mm-hmm. not true. I, I, I remember, like, I think the first time I was exposed to it, I was, it was probably, let me think about this, like somewhere between 90 and 94, somewhere in there, oh, wow. when I was in Hawaii in the Air Force, mm-hmm. I met this guy and he was into meditation and um, I think he was also into Reiki. Um, so we had discussions and he recommended books and then part of it was, you know, okay, do this thing where you, you meditate. So I would, I think I read like a couple of books about it, maybe like Zen mind, the beginner mind and some, you know, just some of the basic books. Um, but then I promptly was like me and then forgot about it. (laughs) That's why Mm -hmm. like, um, then I think I didn't get into it again, probably until, similar to what you're talking about, maybe like 2003, 2004, five, something like that, mm-hmm. where I started looking at folks like uh, Wayne, Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra mm-hmm. and, and their suggestions. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I've basically been practicing one way or the other, you know, since then. Um, mm-hmm. And you're right. I, I and in, I've gotten to the point now where I don't think about the experience itself. I mean, I do have lots of experiences, um, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because uh, when I'm not doing it, I feel better during the day. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So if I mm-hmm. spend 20 minutes trying to do some sort of meditative thing, um, mm-hmm. whatever that, whatever shape that takes, there may be an experience. There may be just me trying not to fall asleep, whatever happens. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of the day is more peaceful, less reactive. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think I heard Earl Nightingale way back in the day talk about the first hour of the day being the rudder for the day, giving the day direction. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, and I just love that idea. And so, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier, I, I wake up around 4.30-ish. Me too. Um, I just don't get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I do, I, I, you I do, meditate. You do I, the thing, like, uh, have you ever heard the term sadhana? Yes, I have heard it. Yeah, yeah. That, yes, I, yes. I read about that, and that I think the recommendation was about 4 a.m.-ish. There's something about the universe at 4 (laughs) a.m. And it seems to follow because I always wake up about the same time. So it is it is a magical moment in my day. It it, it truly is magical. And so I spend depending on the day, usually weekdays is about 20 to 30 minutes. Weekends is longer because my kids don't wake up till later so I can push them till later. Yeah. But, you know, I, I spend that first, you know, 30, 45 minutes, like literally just like just welcoming the day, being grateful. Mm. And then on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I right after I meditate, I sit down at my computer and and I just I, I, I do my blog. My my blog has to be published by about six fifteen, six thirty in the morning before my kids wake up. Mm, right. I like that. Good time limit. <laughs> I, I had to, when I started my blog, I had to put constraints in place. Otherwise, I know I'd be sitting there all day trying to edit it and second-guessing myself. And so the constraint mm. I put into my mind was, look, you just need to blog and publish and move on. Right. Yes. We, we could – man, you could have saved like a, a George Lucas millions and billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> George, let go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> anyway, um, so yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say about meditation, um, as far as like paying for um, some sort of training is, you know, if you've got the means to spend whatever amount of money to, to get a mantra and some teaching and that works for you, great. But you don't have to. <laughs> I mean, if you don't have the means, you know, I think um, there's plenty of ways that you can find a teacher for free. I'm pretty sure. Um, Absolutely. Yes. And uh, or you can just self-teach. There's there's mm-hmm. tons of books out there on meditation. And there's tons of podcasts that there's tons of free resources. So. There's, there's no limiting factor as to say, well, I could do meditation, but I don't have a thousand dollars or whatever it costs to pay for a TM teacher. So I can't. Well, right. Absolutely. I mean, if, if anyone is listening and they're interested, I'm sure they can reach out to either you or me. Right. We'll be happy to sit down on a call for 30 minutes to kind of walk them through some of the questions I have. For sure. Um, and the other thing is, is some people, I think if they did pay, they would probably get a benefit because then they would have skin in the game. What's the adage? People pay attention to what they pay for. Right. <laughs> so if you don't pay for things and you go, me, I don't have to do that. But if you, if you lay down some serious scratch, then maybe mm-hmm. you're more interested. It seems Absolutely. more psychologically important to you. Absolutely. So uh, there, I just argue for both sides of the, <laughs> the <Yeah>. equation. <laughs> Which I tend to do. So I the, the other thing that I noticed on your blog was uh, immortality is a life goal, which made me laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope that was the intention. It uh, was, it is. Okay, good. <laughs> but I want to talk about it anyway, because uh, even though it's supposed to be funny, um, I've been thinking about it for, you know, forever. For as long uh-huh. as I can remember, I... Uh, I wanted to, first I thought, no matter what, I want to be immortal. Mm-hmm. But then I went through this long phase of, do I really want to be immortal? It depends on what it looks like, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, there Absolutely. could be a curse version of immortality, right? Yes. Right. Um, I can imagine that. I can also imagine uh, um, a version of immortality that um, might be a lot of fun. Um so what are your thoughts uh, and what version of immortality are you thinking about when you say that? So I, I wrote this down 15 years ago that I wanted to live to be 132. That was my first okay. number. At, right. that time, when, at that time when I wrote it down, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. Right. And my, and my version of, of being 132 was being, you know, semi-healthy, having, you know, a, a decent memory, um, but, you know, living with whatever technology was at hand at the time, we're talking 15 years ago. So two or three major shifts have happened since then. I got married. Now I have three wonderful kids and I want to be around as long as I can to see them grow and my grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. So I have that perspective on it. I have the perspective of just being an overly curious bugger. I'm just, I'm just curious about a lot of things. Sure. I mean, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's nature, whatever it is, and I, I just love the idea of learning. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong self learner, and so just, just seeing what's around the corner. Um, I also have this view that you know, I, I want to see what. What is, what is a human being 2.0 look like? You know, some of the conversations right now around singularity, I think they're talking about 2040, you know, right. where, where Maybe. computers and hum, humans come together, right? And 
um, they're also talking about now technology is at the point where if within 10 years you're going to be, you know, 60 or 70 years old, and then essentially they'll be able to add 10 years of life to every year of life for that after that. Right. And so, you know, my version of immortality is a, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a version of you being able to take care of yourself to a certain degree. You're, you have, you know, a certain degree of health and you're not a burden on yourself or society and you're able to navigate so one of my local heroes, I haven't met him, but he's a, he's a father of a friend of mine. He's a 104-year-old gentleman that has an Apple Watch, brand new iPhone X, is into virtual reality, drives himself around, goes to breakfast every morning at a restaurant. He's 104. Like to me, that that's like a phenomenal. It's like one of my heroes. I haven't met him yet, but he's you know he's the gentleman I know is right. 77. His name is Trent. This is Trent's father. And like that's my view of getting old. You know, my father is going to be um, 80 next year. He's the youngest of five. All five are still alive. The oldest is going to be 90 next year. And so my perspective on aging and, and mortality is is from a view of, you know what, people can live somewhat healthy lives right. easily, easily into their 80s and 90s. What can we go beyond that? And, you know, my point right now is immortality, absolutely, but more from a, from a, from a curiosity standpoint. I'm with you. I think all of those options, I think uh, I heard like uh, Paul Harvey when I was a kid talk mm-hmm. about how um, there was this idea floating out there in the ether in, in that time when mm-hmm. that uh, like a human's natural lifespan without disease could be as long as about 120 years. So that's, that was my stake in the ground. I want to stay at, at least that long. Right. Right. <laughs> when I was, yeah. So that was similar to your 130 year idea, mm-hmm. but you're right with technology where it is today, humanity is, you know, on the precipice of either being going extinct or becoming, you know, air quotes, immortal and, mm-hmm. and not, not the sort of, spiritual woo-woo kind of immortal (laughs) where we're all the same soul kind of idea. Not that kind of immortal. We're talking about the technological immortality where something else might kill us, but not old age. Correct. So where death becomes slightly more optional. Mm -hmm. I'm down with that. As long as what you were, I agree with you. I don't want to be like a brain in a bottle you know, or, right. or stuck in a bed, you know, in a world of pain. No, I want to be able to walk around and do stuff, right? It, you know, and maybe yeah. solve problems and help people. There, there's that aspect of it. But, right. You know, one to your point about arguing the counter, one could almost argue the counter. You know, we had the recent passing of Stephen Hawking, right? Right. Bloody genius, right? He was 76 or 77, you know, and, and he said that one of the things that allowed him to think the way he did is because he didn't have to focus his thinking on other parts of his life, you know? Right. And so, you know, and, and there's a great movie, I think it's called the bone collector, Denzel Washington's in a you know, bedridden situation. But, you know, you look at people like that who have like Stephen Hawkins, who have these, who have these brilliant genius minds, mm. um, you know, what would it look like if, you know, we could keep him around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, or some of the greats or some of the geniuses, what, what would that look like? And so, you know, I, I understand again, and I don't want to be a burden to my family or society, but right. you know, if, if we have a family friend right now that has a um, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, mm. I think it's ALS. I think it's what it's called. Right. Um, and you know, I, I go to visit him occasionally. And this man, he used to be in the petroleum field, petroleum work, and he's he's a bloody genius. He's such a smart gentleman. I could sit and talk to him for hours and hours, but he's physically immobile. 
Mm, okay. And, and there's no getting better from that. But, right. you know, his, his brain is fully functional. Yeah, I suppose. I, that would be okay as long as as long as you're getting having a stimulating experience. I mean, maybe. I agree. Yeah, as long as you know, maybe that means you know reduced mobility. As long as you know you're not like having to struggle to breathe and you know w- living uh, in a world of pain. Uh, absolutely. Right. Or you know having to be like numbed out on drugs. You know mm-hmm. there. There's, you know, it's very conditional at this point. <laughs> you know, I get it that, you know, part of part of the life experience is suffering. But, you know, there, I read this book um, because the, the science fiction world has been toying with this immortality idea forever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? I, I, and I don't I wanted to ask you um, your thoughts on just your belief system. Um, mm-hmm. do you, do you believe that like it, that there's an afterlife and that you would be short circuiting said, said afterlife if you went into life extensions? So I believe that we're all from the same source of energy. Okay. And we're just different manifestations of that source of energy. Right. And, you know, so when I look at a tree or when I look at an animal, I, I think, you know what, this was energy and one part took a left turn and here I am. And one part took a right turn. There's a squirrel over there. Right. And so, you know, we, we all, you know, if, if you're a believer in physics, then we all manifested from the same big bang force of energy. Right. And so we're just different manifestations or interpretations of energy. And so I don't, I don't believe I will be, you know, I think you said short circuiting or, you know, I don't think there's an afterlife. Eventually you're where, going to die. Right. Is that what you're it, doing? It, it, exactly. And, and, you know, my energy, if I'm cremated then that energy will turn into a different form of energy and different things will happen with it. But, um, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm short circuiting something on the other side of that. Okay. No, I don't either because I think you can do like times forever, basically. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's what we are. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I jokingly tell people that, you know, my belief, let's talk about my children for a minute. You know, my children, in my mind, existed before they were my children. They right. they, they existed in a different form of energy. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just true. conduits. We're just conduits to bring them into this form of energy. And, you know, it's my job to take care and nurture this piece of energy until it's well enough to move on by itself again. Right. Yeah. And even if, you know, obviously we can't know one way or the other. Um, that's the way I look at it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. If there is an afterlife or, or there isn't. But mm-hmm. still, you know, um, I would like extend my life uh, as, like I said, under under certain conditions. As, as long as I thought it was, I was still going to be stimulated and having, you know, a productive sort of like interesting, fun experience. Um, Absolutely. It's not going to last forever anyway, you know. And there's a great book on that I read back in 2009 called Sum, S-U-M, and it's just some different viewpoints on what the afterlife might look like. It's okay. a really interesting read. I think it's uh, by Dr. Eagleman, I think. Okay. And, and I read it back in 2009. Mm, Sum. Mm-hmm. S-U-M. Mm. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. So we're at that hour mark. So I guess we have to start wrapping up. (laughs) So um, anything else? I'll leave you with the last word from uh, and you can talk a little bit more about how folks can get in touch with Raj Daniels at RajDaniels.com. Absolutely. Like you said, RajDaniels.com, you know, on on 
I'm not on Facebook, but on Twitter, I'm Raj underscore Daniels. But, you know, I, I have this, um, what I call three new people a week, where I like to meet with three new people a week. But, you know, if, if, if they're in Dallas, DFW, I would love to sit down and talk with them, have a cup of coffee and tea. Um, it, it's expanded my view on humanity. I've been doing this for about three years now, four years. Wow. I've had the pleasure of meeting hundreds of people. And it's really given me an understanding of grounding and how much we actually have in common. Oh, of course. Yeah. That- rather than, you know, what, what divides us. Right. And I would recommend if someone, you know, if I were to give one takeaway, you know, go out and meet as many people as you can face to face. And I don't mean in a concert style or an event style. I mean, sit down, make some eye contact, cup cup of tea, cup of coffee, you know, whatever, whatever you, whatever suits you. Um, And I I literally subject line my meetings, no transaction, no agenda. Yeah, that's the best. Just, just tell me just human contact. Yeah. And I'll tell you about me and you know what, let's just see what happens from here. That's the show. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely and so i, I that if i you know one tangible takeaway for anyone that's listening try it try it for an extended period of time try, try it for six months try it for a year and your life will change and you'll have the opportunity to change people's lives too amazing thank you raj this has been a blast thank you so much jeff i really appreciate it all right have a good one you too Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. Vroom Vroom Veer.